Hi, my name is Matt. Welcome to the Trinity Church Brighton Sermon Podcast. Uh, we had a little technical issue this week, so I'm recording and speaking to you from my office, uh, but I will do my best to replicate the Sunday morning sermon for you. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening to our sermons online. Uh, we really hope you find them helpful, and you're always welcome to get in touch uh, if you'd like to know more or follow up further. Uh, let's get into our reading for today. Today we are reading from Genesis chapter 6. Uh, and then I'll be preaching the sermon for you. It's uh, the story of Noah and the flood. Reading from Genesis chapter 6. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thought, thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both the, them and the ark and the earth. Uh, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with, with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath in it, everything on the earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons, and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything as God commanded him. Well, Noah's ark, it's a, uh, it's a strange story, don't you think? Uh, for me, it raises lots and lots of questions, uh, and I was going to uh, try and just talk to you for a while about this, but I was actually out shopping at Audi last week, and um, hit home for me, I reckon there are two types of people in the world, those who uh, like Aldi special buys and those who don't. Uh, I love Aldi special buys. I was in Aldi this week, walking down the special buys uh, aisle, uh, there was, you know, big cactuses, ski gear, uh, big giant drill press, uh, and then I see this, uh, a wooden Noah's Ark. And I have to say, I reckon all, almost all my questions about Noah's Ark can be summed up just uh, through this one little toy. I mean, I just try and have a look at it uh, with fresh eyes. Uh, the first thing I notice is that there's lots of cute animals. Uh, see, there's a little platypus on the deck. 
I don't just I think hang, hang on a minute uh, questions you know why is there a platypus on the deck surely a platypus is a water animal right actually that does that probably mean they didn't need to come onto the ark at all uh, but actually uh, platypuses are freshwater animals so actually maybe the platypus would need to come into the ark but actually was was the flood freshwater or was the flood saltwater I, I mean um there was rain from water and from underground so maybe the flood was freshwater i, I don't know maybe no i did need some aquariums on board for freshwater animals like the platypus uh, and if a platypus did get across to the middle east uh, uh sorry how did a platypus get across from the from australia to the middle east anyway like ah uh, questions 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 uh, obviously this Aldi Noah's Ark is an Aussie animal themed version you know there's a little kangaroo there's a little koala and uh, I appreciate Aldi trying to remind us that even though they're a German company they're trying to you know uh, appeal to us as local Aussies so you know good on them but uh, actually did the kangaroos and the emus and the koalas really somehow travel all the way to the Middle East to go into Noah's Ark um, or actually did the flood not affect uh, the part of the world that we're in uh, and, and you know actually I think there's all those questions, but I think the biggest question for me is a bit more serious. You know, I, I was planning, having bought this toy and, you know, shown everyone on Sunday morning uh, that I was going to go and give it to my two-year-old. But actually, is it actually appropriate that we give kids a toy that helps them reenact the brutal deaths of thousands of people? And for that matter, how in the world, given we're, given we're a society that I would say is pretty... Uh, it's pretty easy to cause offence in today's society. How in the world can you just go down to the supermarket and buy a kid's toy that celebrates the story of Noah's Ark? I mean, do most people really not know why Noah and his family and his animals had to go into the Ark? I mean, it seems quite inappropriate, doesn't it, to have this as a kid's toy? I also brought along uh, another prop today, one of uh, Lucy's books. Uh, it's called My First Bible Stories. Uh, let me read you, um, every, every kid's Bible has a little story of Noah and the Ark. Let me read uh, the story of Noah to you. It says, uh, Noah was faithful, true, and good. God told him, build an ark of wood. He built the boat and two by two brought in animals and his family too. The rain came down for 40 days. The flood washed all our sins away. I mean, it's a beautiful, happy story, and our sins are gone. Look at all the happy animals. That's not really what happened, is it? It's not our sins got washed away. It's a little bit more than that. Ah, I just have so many questions when it comes to this story. Well, the big question I want us to focus on today is actually the question of God's judgment. Uh, how we're to understand it, why I think actually judgment is a more positive thing than we might think at first uh, Actually, I think, I think God's judgment is the big thing here with Noah and the ark. I think that's the big question for us. But uh, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to have a little aside first. There are lots and lots of these kind of more technical questions around Noah and the ark. Let me just have a go at um, uh, telling you what I think about some of these more uh, technical questions about Noah and the ark. I was joking a little bit before about uh, the Aussie animals and the Aldi toy, but... Uh, really, if the flood story is true, then it's a story of God doing something miraculous. And if God is doing something miraculous, we shouldn't be surprised if things uh, don't quite make sense from a rational point of view, if things are a bit strange. so. Uh, but, but there is a real question, of course. You know, was the flood a global thing? Did the flood reach Australia? Uh, of course, that's debated. And, you know, we all have to form our own opinions. And can I say this is uh, one of those things that I think it's fine to disagree on. Uh, but personally, you know, I've, I've been thinking about a lot. I, I'm not sure, but I, I don't think so. I don't think the flood was a global thing. Uh, and I have two reasons. One of my reasons is that I actually think the Bible text 
uh, is really as obviously describing a global flood as we might think, uh, which might surprise you. But we looked at this back in Genesis 1. Uh, it's so confusing, this word that we see a lot in these early chapters of Genesis, this word earth. Uh, because I think when we think of the earth, we automatically think of the globe. We think of the planet, but that's not really what the word means. Our ancient readers would have read earth and they would have thought of the land, the dirt. You know, I, I dug up the earth from my garden, that sort of uh, earth. Back in Genesis 1, it was uh, God made the heavens and the earth. And we said that actually really a better translation would be God made the sky and the land, you know, the sky and the dirt. Uh, well, it's the same thing here. It's, it's not the water covered the planet. It's the water covered the dirt. You know, I can go out to my backyard and say, oh, the grass is covering the dirt. It doesn't necessarily mean we're talking about something worldwide. Uh, so I'm not sure this story is quite as clearly trying to describe a global flood as, as some people might think. Uh, my, my second reason, and I, I wouldn't totally rule out the global flood, by the way, but if we are talking about a flood that was 4,500 years ago, which is kind of roughly when young Earth creationists try to place the flood, I, just, I, can, I, I personally cannot reconcile how that can have been possible, a 4,500 year old global flood. And the reason for that is you can literally go back and read the history of cultures from that time period. You can read about the Egyptians, they're a good example. You can go back and read about Egyptian kings and you can read about Egyptian culture from before the flood, from during the flood, from after the flood, and there's no mention of a worldwide flood. So if, look, if there was a global flood, possibly it happened uh, a long way back, you know, maybe tens of thousands of years. But look, I personally am not really convinced that's what the Bible's trying to describe anyway, a, a total worldwide flood. My, my guess is I don't think then that our platypus and our kangaroos would have actually needed to have been on the ark. So sorry to Aldi. Obviously, Aldi thinks that the flood was global uh, and good to see Aldi getting involved in theological debates. Uh, but look, another question. Some people take this even further and say maybe the flood story is just a legend, you know, a total, totally not true myth sort of story. And, and I'm not convinced by that. Uh, there are lots of stories and records of some sort of massive flood in the ancient Near East region at some point a few thousand years ago. And I think uh, the most likely explanation for all those stories is that there was a real flood of some sort, a real story behind it. Now, what I, what I am too open to, though, it was, uh, it was quite normal in ancient writing to take a true story and not worry too much about all the details. They, they didn't record uh, history like we did back in those days. It was quite normal to take a story and use... Uh, you know, hyperbole and exaggerate the details to tell the story in a more uh, exciting way and make it even more vivid and to make the, the point behind the story come through more clearly. Uh, and actually, we know the author of Genesis is happy to use hyperbole at points. I'll give you one example. One example in um, Genesis chapter 41, verse 57. Uh, if you go there, you can find a verse about uh, a famine that's going on. And the Bible says that the whole world came to Egypt. Uh, the whole world came to Egypt uh, where there was food. And we, of course, don't think that literally every single person in the whole world came to Egypt during that time. You know, the, the North American or the uh, Australian Aboriginal, it, it's, it's hyperbole. So look, I don't think the story of Noah and, Noah and the Ark is a totally made-up story, but I do think that the story isn't trying to give us precisely, historically accurate, scientific sorts of details uh, in the way that we would think about that today. Uh, I think the story is more interested in making uh, a bigger point about God's judgment. Uh, of course, there are plenty who disagree with me and think that the story of Noah's Ark is precise in every way. Uh, and you might have heard of uh, Ken Ham, who even built actually a full, li full life-size ark in America to try and prove that the uh, the detail in the story is accurate. Uh, unfortunately, um, 
uh, I put a photo of the ark up on the screen uh, on Sunday uh, and uh, the first thing I noticed in the picture is actually that as the ark was being built, Ken Ham needed modern day cranes to build his ark and actually he also used hundreds of people and he used steel boats and he used all sort of uh, steel bolts, sorry, steel bolts uh, and all sorts of things that Noah wouldn't have had access to. Uh, even the wood from sourced from all sorts of different parts of the world. For, for me, it almost makes it even harder to believe that thousands of years ago, Noah could have built a boat the same size uh, on his own uh, when it was so hard for Ken Ham to build one um, in modern times. And actually, the reason I build that up, bring that up, I don't want to make fun of Ken Ham particularly. I think uh, actually reading uh, reading a bit about Ken Ham, he's a pretty smart, pretty cluey guy, but uh, but actually, this is serious stuff because there is a problem here, and that is that many, many Christians have grown up being told that you have to take the Bible in this particular way and take every detail literally. Uh, and what happens is that you grow up and you start realizing that actually there's some holes in some of this stuff. And if you've been told that the only way to believe the Bible and to read the Bible is this particular way, then if you start discovering those holes, it can actually end up destroying those people's whole faith. When you turn secondary issues like the precise detail of the flood into primary issues, I think that actually can do quite a bit of damage. I've said this before and I'll say it again at Trinity. We encourage you to ask questions. We encourage you to push back on things and even to stand up and say that I don't necessarily find this particular thing convincing. We don't always agree on everything, but we do think that the Bible ultimately does hold up to scrutiny. And so we're not afraid to think hard, to wrestle, to follow the rabbit holes when there's something we don't quite find convincing. And so, of course, if uh, you want to push back on what I've said this morning, well, I'm very happy for you to do that as well. There's no exception. Uh, so uh, I said yesterday on Sunday that I was happy to chat after the service, but you're welcome to go into our website and fill out a contact card. Uh, or, you know, it just, just it's, it's also just okay if we think a bit differently. We don't have to necessarily get to the point where we agree on every single thing. Uh, that's just all my thoughts on that stuff. I hope that's helpful as we uh, get into this story of Noah and the flood. Uh, I'm not convinced we have to hold to a global flood. I'm not convinced we have to take this story as precise scientific historical truth. I do think, though, that actually we have to get our heads around the story's big point. We have to get our head around the story's big point. So let's move to the big question, you know, because if, if all that technical stuff is pushed to the side, what's, what's more important than all of that is what the text is here to teach us, what it's trying to do. And if you've been with us for the past uh, few weeks, it helps because we get the context. Uh, we've seen God create the world. We've seen the reason that the world is broken. We've seen uh, if there's any hope for the world, it's hope that God will act. Uh, and in the story of the flood, act is exactly what God does. He decides to act. He decides to fix his world. Uh, that's what the passage is here for, to show us about God's solution to the world. And what is God's solution? Well, it's It's judgment. God's solution is judgment, which really means our big question is the hardest one of all. How is judgment a solution to the world's brokenness? You know, in fact, how can we trust a God who judges and sends a flood and oversees the death of thousands of people? Historical questions are easy compared to that, aren't they? Well, I do think the story shows us that judgment is a bit different to what we might think. Uh, let me give you three things that I think the story does tell us about judgment. It shows us, uh, first, that God's judgment is painful. Uh, but second, it also shows us that God judgment, God's judgment is necessary. Uh, and third, believe it or not, it actually shows us that God's judgment is loving. Which we might find hard to believe, but I hope I can show you that that's true. 
Uh, let's have a look at some of our passage. Uh, we've, we've, we're only looking at uh, chapter 6 of Genesis today, even though the story of the ark uh, keeps going right through four chapters, but uh, chapter 6 kind of gives us uh, the summary, uh, and our growth groups are getting a chance to look at the other chapters of uh, the story of Noah's Ark during the week. But uh, just when you thought you had dealt with all the tricky questions for this morning, have a look at the start of our chapter in, in Genesis 6, because what we find is even more strangeness. Uh, it starts off saying, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. What's going on here? Sons of God are marrying daughters of humans, whoever these uh, sets of people are. And then even weirder, in verse 4, uh, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, uh, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of humans? Who are the Nephilim? What is the deal with all this? Uh, well, uh, a couple of options. Some some will say that the sons of God are angels and that the angels somehow came down and had children with humans and that the children of the humans and the angels were these Nephilim people, whoever they are, they, they were. And it's weird because the passage sort of reads like it expects you to already know who the Nephilim is, which is strange. I really have a lot that I don't know here, but uh, science does support, by the way, the idea that there were other human life creatures alive thousands of years ago. So you know, whoever these things were, you know, seems like maybe there was something a little bit more abnormal than humans around uh, back in the day. I actually think the other option, which makes some sense, though, uh, in understanding these first couple of verses is uh, that maybe these daughters of humans, uh, these daughters of humans, uh, maybe that's referring to Cain's line. Uh, maybe the sons of God is referring to Abel's line, Seth or Seth's line. Uh, that will make a bit more sense if you uh, listened to the sermon last week. There were uh, these two legacies. There were these two family trees. Uh, one of the one of the lines was better. One of the lines was worse. Uh, and if you've got a really good memory, we even spoke about how Cain, uh, who was the father of one of the lines, Cain, uh, his name literally meant in the original language, uh, his name meant something that Eve acquired. I have acquired. Uh, and Seth, who who was the father of the other line. Uh, Seth's name meant that he was one granted by God. So, so there's something that Eve acquired and then there's one that was granted by God. So maybe Cain's line is in some ways uh, belongs to Eve, you know, the daughter of humans, uh, daughters of humans, and maybe Seth's line uh, were the ones that belong to God, you know, the sons of God. So maybe that's who your daughters of humans and your sons of God are, maybe. Uh, whatever though is going on with all that stuff, that I think the big point is more clear and that's that even though things have been going okay for a while uh, they're now quickly turning south as you see this in verse 5 the lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time the lord regretted that he'd made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled we're saying that god's judgment is painful uh, it's obviously painful to those who are judged, but what I don't want us to miss is that judgment is painful to God. We mustn't think that God is ever happy about carrying out punishments like he does it because he enjoys it. Uh, look at what it says here. God's heart was deeply troubled. Uh, a commentary I was reading during the week said that the word used here is used only to describe the most intense form of human emotion. Great sadness, great bitter anguish. It's a word that's used through the Bible when people find out a friend has died or it's used at one point to talk about a 
excuse me, a wife who's been abandoned. Now that's kind of the picture, isn't it? God made us as his special possession and with sin we decided that we didn't think he knew what was best. We decided we could get rid of him. God is deeply hurt. He's deeply emotional. His heart at this incredibly deep level, his heart was deeply troubled. God's judgment is a painful, awful thing. And I think, actually, most of all, it's painful to God. But what this story shows us is not just that God's judgment is painful. It also shows us that God's judgment is necessary. Let's have a look at exactly uh, why God chose to send the flood. We see that in verse 11. Uh, It says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people of the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. There's a very clear reason why God sends the flood. Uh, It's because the earth was filled with violence. In fact, there's a play on words in the original language. It literally says that the earth is filled with destruction, and so God is going to destroy, destroy the destruction. Why is judgment necessary? Well, we'll just think for a minute about the alternatives. Uh, If God wasn't a God who judges, he would have to be a God who would sit back and say, the world is violent, the world is full of destruction, the world is full of chaos, and I'm not going to do anything about it. Uh, You know, a God who doesn't judge is a God who doesn't care. A God who doesn't judge is a God who's happy to let chaos reign, and, and we know God isn't that kind of God. God is a God who brings order out of chaos, who, who puts things right. You know, we, we've been seeing that ever since right back in Genesis 1. And what's the way to put things right when things are chaotic and violent and broken? Well, the way to put things right is to sort things out, to bring about order, to bring about justice, to judge. The word uh, the word judgment is really very close to the word ju- justice, isn't it? And yet we think of justice, uh, judgment as a negative thing and justice as a positive. We want justice, don't we? You know, think of, think of say, Christian Porter. You know, the Christian Porter story has been in the news again this week. You know the story, don't you? Uh, a liberal minister who was accused of rape back in the late 80s, but because his alleged victim had tragically suicided, there was no uh, really no way that a, a legal course of action could be brought against him. But uh, think of how angry that made many people feel. I have no idea whether he's guilty or not. We may never know. But uh, just that thought of someone getting away with something so awful, it grates on us, doesn't it? We want justice. And so we actually do think judgment is necessary. Now, if we want this broken world fixed, if we want... God to put it right, while the solution to the world's problems is God choosing to act and bringing about justice. If God is to save, he can only do it through judgment. Yeah, it makes me think of what a number of politicians have been saying the past few months about the COVID vaccine. You know, we're going to be living with restrictions until we can get people vaccinated. No back to normal without a vaccine. Well, with the world, the Bible is very clear. You know, no back to normal without a vaccine, no salvation without judgment. No salvation without judgment. It's the only way God can bring about a world where justice and order reigns. To uh, push this a bit further, you know, we read this passage and uh, about the world being filled with violence. Uh, uh, violence is still so prevalent today, as we spoke about last week. Uh, you know, God's judgment actually shows us that violence is not uh, okay. God's judgment actually shows us that violence is not okay. Uh, in fact, Tim Keller takes this even further. Uh, he says that without judgment we really have no basis for saying that violence is even evil in the first place Uh, 
violence is certainly natural. Violence is there in nature. It's there in the animal kingdom. It's there in biology. Here's what Keller says. He says, violence is utterly natural. Uh, unless there's a God, unless there's a judge, unless there's something outside of nature by which to judge nature. How can you say anything that's natural is wrong? On what basis do you say it? How can you say anything in nature is crooked unless there's a straight edge somewhere? You see what he's saying? If there's no God, if there's no God who judges, well, that would mean we live in a world where violence is just part of the world, where it's just natural, where chaos reigns and there is no one to put a stop to it. So how then can we even say that violence is wrong if it's just a natural thing? It's interesting, isn't it? I think he does have a point though. You know, God's judgment shows us that violence is wrong. God's judgment shows us that he cares about the world's brokenness, that he is a God who doesn't just stand back. He's a God who acts. And actually, that's a very powerful thing because if there is no God or if at least there's no God who, you know, will step in and do something about evil, well, then it really encourages us to seek judgment ourselves. And when we're wronged, when we suffer violence, when we suffer pain, well, then the natural thing to do would be to seek revenge, to try and fight and get justice for ourselves. But if there's a God who judges, if there's a God who can perfectly meter out justice and put everything right, actually that gives us the power to forgive. Because we, we, we can forgive knowing that justice will be done, that the just God will judge and put things right again. Judgment is a painful thing, uh, but judgment is also a necessary thing. It's the only way for things to be put right. It's the only way for this world to find salvation. No salvation without judgment. But we still need to take this further. We need to see that God's judgment is loving. You know, one thing you might be thinking in all of this is you might say, well, you know, okay, I can feel the judgment is sort of painful. I can sort of understand why uh, judgment might be necessary. But, you know, I still just feel awful thinking about this idea of God sending the flood, you know, punishing these people, even if they were violent, you know, it actually, it actually makes me sick to my stomach, actually. Well, if you're thinking carefully, you might even be thinking, well, I can see that God's judgment is necessary, but what does that mean for me? If we've been paying, paying close attention to Genesis so far, we will know that we're part of the problem, you know, we're part of the chaos, we're part of the violence. Does that mean if God is to bring about justice, then I'm in line for punishment as well? Well, if these things do make you feel awful, if the thought of these people drowning does make you feel sick to your stomach, there's nothing wrong with you. Uh, it's, not, it's not a matter of just uh, toughening up. We're, we're not meant to read these things and feel happy about them. And if we do feel like this, we know that we're in good company, don't we? Uh, God himself was deeply troubled in his heart. You know, here's a, here's a question. If you've been following along with the story of Genesis, you know, chaos hasn't just come into the world here in Genesis 6. You know, it was Genesis 3 back back then. There was back at the fall where sin and violence first entered the world. So so here's the question. Why then? Why didn't God act to judge the world back in Genesis 3? Why did God let the world go on at all? You know, the world was broken, filled with chaos. If God's a God who wants a world of order, why wouldn't he just judge straight away? You know, bring about, bring about the justice, hand out the punishments. And when it... When it does come time to judge in the flood, why does he then bother to save Noah and his family? Why does God bother to save the animals? You know, why not just properly wipe the, wipe the slate clean and start things again with a world of order? You know, he could have even made two new humans if he wanted. Well, 
we find the answer to these questions at the end of the story in Genesis 9. Let me take you uh, forward in our Bibles just for a minute to Genesis 9. Uh, Verse 1, the flood's over. Uh, It reads, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Uh, It's back to Genesis 2 kind of again, isn't it? Uh, God saves Noah and his family and the animals because he's not done with the world yet. He wants them to go on and start filling the world again. He needs to judge, but he's not ready to let the world go. He he loves us too much. He loves us too much. That's why God didn't ditch things back in Genesis 3. It's why even at the flood, he brings people through the flood because he wants to keep going. He loves us. He's not ready to end things. He loves this world, and even more later in chapter 9, he commits to this world. I look at what he says in chapter 9, verse 8 and following. He says, Then then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I will establish my covenant. A covenant is sort of a legal, a legal sort of commitment. I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all wild animals, all those who came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. God loves this world. He made it. And now he's committed to it. He's also committed to putting things right, to bringing about justice, but he will not just destroy this world. Now, if the thought of God flooding the world makes you sick to your stomach, well, here it shows that the thought of flooding the world made God sick to his stomach too. He's not going to do the same thing again. And in fact, he's so committed to the world, he so loves this world, that he would ultimately come into the world. He would ultimately come and take judgment onto himself and die so that all who trust in him might be saved. You know, the flood, uh, God bringing judgment, saving Noah. The flood wasn't ultimately the solution to the world of brokenness pretty quickly after the ark. uh, Sorry, after Noah's off the ark, uh, things turned south again. uh, But the the flood does point to God's solution. There's no salvation without without judgment. God's ultimate salvation is salvation through judgment. Salvation through the judgment of Jesus. Justice being done, but rather than getting a deserved punishment, salvation is given as a free gift to those who trust in Jesus. God's judgment is painful. God's judgment is necessary. But God's judgment is also loving. He'd rather take judgment onto himself than destroy his creations. He loves us too much. Well, before we finish then, let's... Uh, just take a few more minutes, having tried to understand the story of the flood and thought about God's judgment. Let's let's think about what the flood then asks of us. Oh, we've seen that the Bible holds up judgment as painful, but also necessary and also loving. I just want us to ask. I just want to ask us uh, about each of those three. So, so first, do you feel the pain of God's judgment? Do you feel the pain? I think. Um, I think the pain, the emotion, the hurt of God comes through. So clearly in this passage, he's devastated at how broken the world has become. He so loves the world that although he needs to act, he does so with patience and mercy. He's committed to the world and so he saves Noah. He, he makes a covenant with him and with the world going forward. He's committed to this world. 
you know, we were only, it was only just the other day we were talking about this in our youth group, and we were asking this question, how many Christians think that God's plan is about trying to escape this world, trying to get to heaven and, you know, just leave this world totally behind? You know, that's not totally wrong. We are trying to escape the brokenness and temptation of this world, but escape is not really the ultimate picture the Bible gives us. Uh, the picture the Bible gives us is eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, eternity in this world, but this world made right. And even God's ultimate plan, it's all about this world. And so the thought of brokenness in this world causes him pain. Do you feel the pain? Because if you feel the pain, if you feel the pain of this world's brokenness, if you feel the pain of the need for judgment, then I think you'll be the sort of person who, like God, is committed to this world. I do think uh, one thing Christians can do sometimes, one mistake we can make, is that we can retreat, we can keep the world at arm's length. You know, fill our weeks with Bible study, with Christian events, you know, just enjoying other Christian company. Basically, we just huddle up and sort of are just waiting it out together until God comes to take us away. But if we feel the pain like God does, if we feel the pain of the world's brokenness, then we'll get involved uh, like God got involved. We'll seek to help the brokenness. We'll get involved in our communities. We'll get alongside people who are struggling. And uh, secondly, if we feel the necessity of God's judgment, if we remember that God's judgment is necessary, then we'll also be committed to telling people about Jesus. Uh, some of you might have heard or seen this movie. Uh, it's called Noah. It stars Russell Crowe and Emma Watson. It's the movie of uh, Noah's Ark. I don't especially recommend it, not because there's anything seriously wrong with it. It's just uh, just a bit dull. But, uh, but you know, when I watched this movie, and it was a while back, and it isn't very faithful to the Bible story, by the way, which, which is fine, but... Uh, there was one thing that really stood out to me that they got wrong. One thing that they uh, really, I thought, uh, really, really just went against the whole grain of the Bible story, and that is that uh, towards the end of the movie, Noah, Noah's there, and everyone's sort of realizing the flood is coming, and Noah's got the boat, and so everyone's everyone's fighting to try and actually get access to the boat. They're, they're trying to get on Noah's boat, and, and Noah's fighting to stop them. He's trying to keep the ark for himself. He's trying to fight them to stay off the ark. Everyone's clambering to get on the ark and he's there trying to fight them off, protect it. And, and it's just so wrong because, uh, you know what Noah is called in uh, uh, the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2? He's called a herald of righteousness. A herald of righteousness. You know you know what a herald is, right? A, a messenger. The, the New Testament describes Noah as someone who told others what was going to happen. And I think Noah, when he was building the ark, he was telling his friends, you know, telling anyone he could find, join us, you know, come onto the ark. Our flood is coming. There's room for everyone. Of course, no one believed him. Jesus in Luke 17, we, we looked at this earlier in the year, Jesus says that the situation we're in today is a lot like Noah building the ark. Uh, it says Luke 27, uh, sorry, Luke 17, 26 to 27. It, it says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. The people were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up until the day that Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Just as it was in Noah's day, so it will be with the return of Jesus. Do, do you feel the truth, the necessity of that coming judgment? Because if you do, you'll be committed to mission and telling people about what's going to happen. And just like Noah was probably mocked for building a boat so far away from the ocean, if we tell people about Jesus, we do open ourselves up to mocking as well. You know, can't, you can't seriously believe in judgment, can you? It's so outdated, it's so offensive. But, but if we trust God, if we believe he's got the power to put things right, then we will trust him to judge.
Do you feel the pain of God's judgment? Do we feel the necessity of God's judgment? Very last thing, do we feel the lovingness of God's judgment? Jesus tells a parable uh, about a flood. Uh, Most of us will know it. He he says, The wise man uh, who builds his house on the rock, the foolish man who builds his house on the sand, the rains came down, the floods came up, uh, but the house on the rock stood firm. Well, we have heard today a brutal story, a, a flood, death, destruction, judgment. So it's important to remember as we finish the lovingness of God's judgment. He is a God who's committed to putting things right. But he's also a God who's committed to us. He he even sent his son Jesus to take his judgment onto himself. And in Jesus and in the teaching of Jesus, we have a rock. As we live our lives for him and build our lives on him and his teachings, we are safe and secure. The brokenness and pain of this world might hurt us temporarily, but in Jesus we have our foundation. When God comes to put things right and bring true justice to the world, we will be safe. We're part of his plan to bring about a world put right. In Jesus we have a rock. In Jesus we have an ark. An ark that will bring us safely through the flood of God's judgment and into his new and perfect world. So, trust in Jesus. Build your life on the rock. Get onto the ark. In Jesus, we have safety. We have security. We are loved. Let me pray now. Dear Father God, we've heard a hard story today, a brutal story, a sad story. And one thing we've seen is how much sin and brokenness hurts you. We know we're part of the brokenness, part of the sin, part of your part of the violence, but we thank you that you are committed to your world. We thank you that you love us enough to do something about the world's brokenness. Oh, we thank you most of all for Jesus, that you loved us enough to send your son so that in believing in him, we know we will not perish, but we'll have eternal life. Help us to build our lives on Jesus. Help us to speak to others about Jesus. Help us to trust Jesus. He is our rock. He is our ark. He is our safety. He is our security. And so we pray in his name this morning. Amen.